The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Well, we've been keeping a close eye on real estate, particularly commercial real estate. Our next guest is the leader of BDO's U.S. site selection team. So has he been busy? My suspicion is he'll say yes. Let's ask him directly. Tom Stringer joins us. Tom, thanks for joining. What's happening out there? Are companies still looking for sites, making plans, changing strategies? Well, first of all, good morning, Vania. Thanks uh, for having me. It's great to be back. And uh, yes, you are right. We are busy. I mean, I think for the first two months of the pandemic, folks were in, in shutdown and wait and see mode. And Kind of as springtime turned into summer, uh, the wheels of commerce luckily started turning again, certainly on, on large capital investment projects. And, and you started to see that. Obviously, today we have some great news in New York City with what Facebook announced with the uh, Farley Post Office building taking a substantial block of space in a central business district, which I think is really probably great news for the brokerage communities across the country. And in the last week or so, you've had some some major investments in, in manufacturing, certainly with Tesla and Nikola with the groundbreaking on their factories in the automotive sector. So wheels are starting to move, uh, which is great news. And Nikola is your client, we, sh- we should mention. Exactly. Yep. So, so, Tom, you know, I guess the debate is still open about, you know, where people will work uh, going forward. A lot of us, most of us, a lot of us are working from home right now. We have been since March. Some folks, unfortunately, are unable to do that, uh, and they are on, on the front lines. But how is it, the thought process evolving about how this is going to play out? Are we ever going to go back to the office full force? It's a great, yeah, it's a great question. I think the answer to that is probably not. I think that anytime you can take, right, the two biggest costs on, on corporate balance sheets are people, we all get that, and then obviously real estate's number two. And anytime you can take uh, your second leading cost and, and maybe half it or reduce it by even as much as a third, um, that's a huge difference. And it, it, it also takes into account that people like working at home to some degree. Some jobs, people would certainly prefer to be back to the office, but that has really been injected into the thought process on a corporate real estate side that, hey, we're going to have to tack a little bit here and you know, try to reconfigure how we utilize space. Is it going to be that big open concept anymore? Will that work? Um, do we need a smaller footprint that's just going to be more hotel and meeting space and, and let most people office out of their homes? So those discussions are really taking place. And I, I think we're probably going to see a reduction in overall office usage. But that's being picked up pretty aggressively on the manufacturing and warehousing side right now. I mean, you can't find warehousing space really uh, anywhere around the country in sizable blocks anymore, which is is indicative of kind of the the rise of e-commerce. Well, so you'd be in a great position to tell us, are those all for server farms and for computers or are there actual people there? Like, I'm fascinated by this tornado story, 730,000 square feet in the middle of New York City, right by Penn, I mean, it is Penn Station, basically. And, uh, you know, that's 10 million square feet in total. But 
is Facebook going to move people into that building or is this another server farm? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, we don't know what their internal plans are yet. Focus has really been on the block of space. But given where it is, given the locality, given, frankly, the utility rates and the cost of utilities in New York versus putting servers in, in more cost-effective jurisdictions or even upstate New York to take advantage of things like Niagara Mohawk Power, it, the odds are that this is really going to be a people-dominated facility, which is great news. Um, but elsewhere around the country, there has been a lot of pickup, really, as, as you point out, in computer capacity, in server farms coming online to handle just the demand of e-commerce and the fact that really we're moving our uh, infrastructure and architecture into the digital world as opposed to physical plant. But it's also being picked up by warehouse. I mean, actual good old-fashioned inventory, as really unsexy as that is, companies are, are building that into their models now because the consumer markets are driving, hey, you need to have these types of prescriptions on hand, these consumer products on hand. So that the kind of the death of the just-in-time inventory model is really taking hold. Hey, Tom, you know, let's talk about New York City in particular. A couple of weeks ago, I came into the city for the first time since early March, and I was just shocked at the number of vacancies, commercial vacancies along blocks that I'm very familiar with where I know there were vi vibrant businesses just several months ago. Where are we in terms of kind of commercial vacancies and maybe even uh, rates um, in New York City? Well, you ask a really good question because even though office and warehousing and industrial may be doing very well, um, certainly in the New York City marketplace right now and, and Facebook being a big help to that, the retail and street level retail is a big issue. And that's been an issue that's really been going on for two and three years prior to the pandemic with landlords just kind of holding out for higher priced uh, rents and, and small mom and pop type of shops and able to make it and, and make it just on a, a commercial lease standpoint. They couldn't afford the rent. This is, along with the lockdown and, and shutting them out of any revenue, has really been uh, a significant problem for the city, and it probably will be for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, the programs that have come out of the Federal Reserve, the PPP, the extensions of it, right, have been helpful, but it, but it, it doesn't replace real revenue. It doesn't replace real consumer demand. It's, it's a Band-Aid um, that, that was designed to get us to, right, market demand again. That still has not come back yet. So I think you point out a, a, a really good issue. That, that retail and Main Street related issues for real estate, not just in the cities, but in the suburbs. I mean, they're going through the same issues right yep. now. Yep. That's a problem. That's a problem that economic development is going to have to deal with, that, that legislatures at the, both the federal, state, local are going to have to deal with. Yep. And, and we've never done that before in this I think, country. I think, right? we've I never think you mean tax breaks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to see. Yeah, it's going to be a big turnaround, Tom, as you were suggesting. Tom Stringer, Corporate Real Estate Advisory Managing Director for accounting firm BDO, giving us his thoughts on the commercial real estate business. Again, the big news in New York City was um, Facebook taking a huge piece of commercial real estate, the Farley Building, which is right across the street from Penn Station in Midtown Manhattan. Well, Bloomberg Markets Magazine is out with a special issue focused on diversity, where black men and women share their experience on Wall Street. Lauren Simmons is one of the contributors. She's the youngest black woman ever to work on the New York Stock Exchange, and she joins us now. Lauren, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, entrepreneur, founder, CEO of Lauren Simmons, we really appreciate you joining us here. Lauren, Wall Street, why can't they seem to make any steady progress at all on diversity? You know, I think it has to be an initiative that people want to care about. 
And if you have people sitting at the top that don't make this an importance, it's not going to be an importance. Um, I know that in 2020, these issues have been brought up again. And once these issues are brought up, it's no reason to turn a blind light. Like you should be going above and beyond to, to do better and to be better and to have more diversity and inclusion within your organization. But 2020 isn't the first time that these issues have been brought up. In 2017, while I was still on the trading floor, it was the year of the woman. And since 2017, up until 2020, we have made marginalized efforts as, you know, bringing more women into the space, let alone bringing more minorities. So, Lauren, how long did you work on Wall Street and did you feel like there was any progress at all between arriving and leaving? Uh, I worked there for two years and... Uh, there was one other uh, lady who eventually joined the trading floor, and she was much older, had been on the trading floor, you know, back in the 90s, early 2000s, and, and had came back. So from my experience, no, specifically to the New York Stock Exchange, no, I, I don't think no. there's been much improvement. So it's interesting, Lauren, you know, I've worked on Wall Street for about 30 years. And what I noticed, and this is probably has some relation to corporate America as well, is the incoming classes, whether at a college, whether they're investment banking analysts or they're new sales and uh, people or traders, there's a fair amount of diversity there, both gender diversity and, and um, all other types of diversity. Yet when you get 10 years forward, seven, eight, nine, 10 years forward, when there's managing director decisions, partnership decisions, those ranks are really thinned out and it does look much less diverse. What do you think the industry has to do to kind of keep those people in the workforce? Yeah, so I definitely think that there should be sponsorships, there should be allies, um, people actively involved in trying to progress uh, individuals' careers. When I was on the trading floor, I love that the men, and it was mutual on both sides, me, but them, we were coming together. What can we do to help you with your career? You know, I'm sure you don't want to stay on the trading floor. What do you want to do in finance? And they introduced me to many different people, and they were definitely helpful in facilitating that. But I know that that's not the experience um, with throughout all of corporate America or even within the financial industry. So I think there needs to be a bridge. and. To, to go from there. Lauren, what did you learn from Wall Street and, and would you ever work on Wall Street again? I learned so many things. Um, obviously working on the trading floor was a very fast paced alpha male environment and I was the only woman on the floor. Um, I think one of the best advice that Richard Rosenblatt could give me while I worked at Rosenblatt Securities is, you know, people are going to notice you regardless. And he didn't mean anything by it, but he just said that because I am the other in the room and, you know, I'm, I'm essentially the elephant in the room, make sure that I have something to say, something of substance to say when people approach me because people are going to notice me either way and there's no way of hiding um, and, and cowarding behind other people. So I thought that was the best advice that I would give. As far as returning back to Wall Street, I, I don't think so. I, I very much enjoyed my experience there, um, but I have ventured off into doing uh, many more things that I'm passionate about that are making a much grander impact. 
Lauren Simmons, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your thoughts. A fascinating story. Lauren Simmons, entrepreneur, founder and CEO of Lauren Simmons LLC. Featured it in uh, the Bloomberg Markets magazine. They have a special issue focused on diversity. Really uh, suggest you take a look at that. It's where black men and women, they really share their experiences on Wall Street. And again, Vani, it's just, you know, my sense that... Um, there's just not enough support to get them through the ranks. Again, I think they do a pretty decent job getting people in the door, but keeping them is a whole nother story. Well, it's definitely a question of willingness. And uh, Lauren at 26, with that kind of experience under her belt, is you know a, a great ambassador for somebody who went out there and did that in spite of all the odds. Uh, I had a conversation with her yesterday and she was telling me that she was the second black person to ever have worked on the New York Stock Exchange, which really, when you think about it, the amount of people that have worked down there over the years, the entire history of the New York Stock Exchange, yeah, for her to be the second black yeah. equity trader down there is really quite something phenomenal, I think. And if you read the Diversity Issue magazine, you'll see that all of these people seem to be one-offs. And that's just not good enough, Paul. No, it's not. And as, uh, as she was mentioning, um, as Lauren was, was mentioning here, there really has to be support. And we've heard a lot of talk, not just from the senior folks on Wall Street, but just senior management in the C-suite in general, you know, over the last decade plus about commitment to diversity. Uh, but they're it just doesn't bear out in the numbers, and we see that time and time again. And so that's why I think this Bloomberg Markets issue does a really good job. It goes below the numbers. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Uh, and really talks to the people, interviews some people that have worked on Wall Street, black men, men and women, and they share their personal experiences and kind of really brings it home. So it was a good job by uh, the team of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm going to be looking forward to seeing what Lauren Simmons does next because yes. she's clearly a trailblazer in her field. So thank you to Lauren Simmons for joining us and speaking about her experience. It's time for Bloomberg Opinion. We are joined this morning by Rachel Rosenthal, editor, Bloomberg Opinion, based in Singapore, out with a fascinating column. And it goes to that whole <coughs> H-1B visa issue that is uh, making – it's always a political issue, but it's even a bigger one this year with President Trump looking to rein that in. And uh, interesting column. Um, Rachel's out with this column. Big Tech wants you to believe in a skills gap, but it's it, – title suggests that maybe Rachel doesn't necessarily believe that. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us here. I've always heard from Silicon Valley that these H-1B visas are critical to their businesses because the U.S. does not produce enough skilled labor. What's the real take there? Do you believe that? Um, well, you know, I, I, um, I went to Stanford, so I, in the heart of Silicon Valley, and I very much believe the same. And, you know, I, I think I would have agreed with you until about uh, about eight or 10 weeks ago when I started researching this piece, um, you know, you start looking at the data and it just 
doesn't really add up. Um, and, you know, if you look at the number of graduates that we have in computer science and engineering, if you look at the number of STEM graduates overall, and then you look at the number of openings, the number of vacancies, patterns of wage growth, and you look at a whole host of other things, um, you start to see some that the thread really starts to unravel there. And you start, you have to kind of ask yourself the bigger question, you know, what, um, what do tech companies want? And it's not just tech companies, it's companies across the tech industry, you know, there are tech workers in all kinds of fields, uh, you know, IT, you know, every kind of company has IT workers, for example. So um, they could be in, in retail to restaurants. So um, there is a lot of incentive to claim that there aren't enough skilled workers because you can get a pretty serious discount on um, on foreign labor, um, and th these are guest workers. Um, so I think, you know, there's a really fascinating paper uh, upon which a lot of my research was based um, out of the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, it came out in May, um, indicating that, you know, there are four wage levels for H-1Bs, um, and the two lowest ones, companies can get a discount. Um, it was up to, you know, 36% for the lowest wage bracket and 18% for the second lowest. Now, that was that, that they had to look at a narrow slice uh, within the D.C. metro area in a certain computer occupation. Um, but it was pretty telling to me that this kind of um, this kind of discount can really add up and create huge savings and create incentives for this narrative to persist. So, Rachel, talk to us about degrees earned versus openings. So in the United States, for example, you know, what degrees are earned versus openings? Sure. Um, so, if you know, I went through a lot of data, which is, um, you know, and there are about uh, three, uh, roughly 365,000 STEM degrees um, in, in the U.S. Um, in the, the latest year that they've tracked it, which was 2018. Um, so that's up 60% from a decade earlier. So people are, you know, American students, are getting lots and lots of degrees in, in quote-unquote STEM fields. And, you know, I think, you know, the knee-jerk impulse would be like, oh, well, aren't all those graduates, you know, from abroad? And they're not. You know, what I found was that actually north of 90% of them were actually American citizens and permanent residents. Um, now, that picture can change as you go up the scale in terms of um, graduate degrees, and there's, that's a little bit of a different metric. But, um, you know, when you look at the bachelor's degrees that are earned, a, a whole lot of them are um, – American uh, Americans and permanent residents. Then, if you look at openings, you know you have to consider that there are certain openings that go that typically would go to um, someone who had a specific type of degree. Let's call it computer science degree or related computer science engineering fields. Um, but that you know not everyone in these fields necessarily has to have a computer science degree. I'm sure. I mean. Steve Jobs himself is a very good example, um, but I know, you know, just from my time at Stanford, I know a number of people who ended up in tech who did not major in computer science, um, and it, it was actually pretty interesting that, you know, two-thirds of um, IT occupation new entrants uh, do not have a computer science degree. So then you have to consider the entire pool of um, American bachelor's degree earners as potential people who could be trained. And I think um, for for uh, this type of work, and I think that you know that is really a key feature in some of the research that I've done is you know why what's the incentive to train someone when you've got you know ready to work cheaper labor that's coming in from abroad. What do the tech companies say um, in response to kind of the economics of this, the, the cheaper uh, nature of some of these uh, foreign workers? Is, what's typically the response? 
Sure. I mean, I, I think the typical response would, would never be to say they are cheaper. And I think that there there is a tremendous backlash um, when Trump issued his, his uh, executive order in June. Um, you know, and, and there are a lot of like really legitimate claims to be made that, you know, a lot of there's a lot of intelligence and innovation and entrepreneurship um, that and that America is built on the foundation of immigrants, which I 100 percent believe. But you have to remember that H-1B visas holders are not immigrants. I mean, they are guest workers and, and they are you know, get trapped in what a lot of people call some version of indentured labor because they are tied. Um, they're sponsored by an employer, um, and it's really difficult to move from one employer to another. So they, you know, they, they're, they're, they're kind of stuck, and, you know, they, they don't have, um, you know, they could be here for three years. They could be here for six years. Sometimes that six years gets extended. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, so, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're really stuck. And I think that, that you know, they, um, because their company sponsors their visa and because their visa is tied to their immigration status and because their immigration status enables them to stay in the U.S., pay taxes, have families and be part of, you know, be part of the communities that they're part of, you know, they can't whistleblow on their companies. So I think, you know, it's very easy to paint this, this picture as, um, you know, anti-immigrant, um, but it's really not because I think the system actually really hurts not only American workers, but H-1B visa holders as well. What happens to the American workers that don't get those jobs then? So, you know, it, there's a number of things. You know, I think you could look, um, you know, I, I often casually wonder to myself, like, why are there so many, you know, computer engineers and finance? And, you know, it, it, it was always just sort of a curiosity to me that I never really thought twice about. But, you know, if you think about it, when, you know, you're not seeing um, wage growth, um, you know, the, the, I should mention that the wages in the IT sector, for example, are higher than the median um, wages in the U.S. broadly, but they're not necessarily growing. I mean, I think there's this idea that, you know, if you get a computer science degree or programming, you're, you, you know, pr- you know how to code, that, you know, you're, 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 you've got a ticket to success. I, I just, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that that's, that that's the case. Um, so, you know, I think that, um you know, this is this is something that, you know, we just have to consider all aspects of. Rachel, it is a fascinating Bloomberg opinion piece, and we always love to focus on these because they tend to put out a, a little viewpoint that might differ slightly or even entirely with what's out there sort of in the ether. So, Rachel, thanks for that. Rachel Rosenthal is editor at Bloomberg Opinion and her piece today, Big Tech Wants You to Believe in a Skills Gap, subtitle, but what they really want is a steady supply of cheap, dependent IT workers. I think that might be called capitalism, Paul. Yes, exactly. (laughs) And it's certainly different from the narrative. What is the latest between TikTok and the United States? What company is interested in buying TikTok and will they be able to? Let's bring in Andrew Brown, Bloomberg New Economy Editor, and in fact, he's the Editorial Director of New Economy. Andy, very great to have you. We've had so many reports over the last couple of days, Fox reporting today that uh, several companies, including Facebook, might actually be interested, Axios saying other companies are interested, and the one we knew about yesterday, Microsoft. Do any of these companies have a better chance than any other? 
Look, I'm, 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 not in, I'm not really in a position of, of, of weighing the merits of, of, of the deal itself. Um, uh, you know, what, what, what you have here is a, a U.S. president um, who has waded into this incredibly complicated corporate situation that touches on very fundamental issues for the United States around freedom of speech, uh, the operations of a market economy. And he seems to have decided in a, in a, in a peremptory and almost arbitrary way that a deal, some deal, whether it's with Microsoft or some of Facebook or some of the act, other actors that you've, you've mentioned, must occur by September 15. Otherwise, um, one of the most popular apps in, in the United States right now, an app that's been downloaded 165 million times, um, an app that Gen Z uh, 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 folks live by, uh, is going to be is going to be close is going to be closed down. Uh, and needless to say, um, uh, Chinese media uh, are absolutely outraged by what's going on. So, Andy, let's get to the heart of the matter. I think the heart of the matter might be. Uh security, national security, and is there any evidence to suggest that there, that TikTok does represent a risk to the United States? Look, the, 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 there is no direct evidence that, um, uh, you know, TikTok is giving U.S. data to the Chinese government. There is circumstantial evidence. There are sort of there is what ifs, right? So, what if the Chinese government said to to, to ByteDance, which owns TikTok, you have to hand over this data? Would would TikTok? Do? Well, they the, the company insists that it wouldn't. Um, uh, it's actually uh, highly unlikely that any company would say no to the to the Chinese government to such a request. So it's all it's it's all hypothetical. I mean, and that that hardly represents smoking gun evidence that TikTok is a national security threat. Having said that, there are really genuine questions uh, and, and fears, um, you know, about data security and the Chinese government. I mean, and these go back years. In 2015, you remember there was a, there was a the Chinese state hackers got into the office of the U.S. Office of Personnel Managers, uh, Management and, and stole data of 4 million, you know, U.S. Uh, government, federal government workers. More recently, there's accusations that state hackers have been getting into labs and stealing, trying to steal um, secrets on the development of COVID-19 uh, vaccines. So, you know, there, there are legitimate concerns. The question is, is this the right way to address these concerns? Exactly. And also, you know, can the U.S. take a fee for doing so? I mean, that's that's the part that, you know, almost becomes funny at that point. And Larry Kudlow is just telling reporters right now that he's not sure a TikTok deal fee to the United States is a, quote, key stipulation. I mean, where did that come out of? Yeah, I, I, I don't. The, 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 the stipulations in the. I mean, this is this is this goes back to the sort of the, 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 this whole arbitrariness. Um, you know, there, there are precedents, right? So some years ago, um, the, the Chinese owner uh, of Grindr, this this you know dating app, was forced to sell after a review by CFIUS, which of course is the U.S. Treasury uh, body that, that that screens foreign investments. But but you know this was there was a process there. I mean it, it, it was as all as all CFIUS processes are. It was secretive, but nevertheless there was a process, and companies could strategize around that process. I mean here you have. Um, you know, uh, essentially, it seems like a decision coming straight out of the uh, the, the, the West Wing. The owner of, of the company, Zhang Yiming, uh, he's been telling employees he has no idea really what's going on, but he thinks the ultimate aim here 
is to close down um, his app. I mean, that, that's what he thinks the end game is. So, Andy, I know you have uh, your ear close to uh, what's happening on the ground in China. What's the response there? I know there's Chinese media's had some response here, but have you heard from other people that you trust your sources about kind of how they view uh, the Chinese view of what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, it, well, we, we, we've all seen the Chinese, you know, uh, state media reaction, China Daily going on about a smash and, and, and grab raid, and Hu Xijin, who's the editor-in-chief of the Global Times, is saying this is, this is open, open robbery. I mean, um, uh, look, th- th- this is, uh, in many ways, TikTok is the avatar of, of, of Chinese tech ambitions. I mean, Chinese people are incredibly proud of, of, of what it's achieved. Uh, it's the first Chinese internet company, uh, social media company, to come into the United States, take on the huge, these gigantic incumbents, uh, and win. You know, I mean, this, this is, it is the essence of the, of the capitalist uh, success story. And, you know, in, in China, essentially, the, the, the view is that they're trying to, trying to you know, clo- clo- close down um, an, an, an app that um, has taken on and defeated American companies, that, you know, this is basically trade protectionism. If this happens, you know, can a new company keep it as successful? Will will people just, you know, be, be fine with new ownership? Or, you know, the, the people that have been on TikTok, especially the younger fans, have shown themselves to be pretty politically active. Will they sort of boycott TikTok if Microsoft buys it? I mean, you can't answer that, I guess, but it's an interesting question, right? Yeah, I'm. 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 I'm not the expert on that. I'm. I'm not even the expert on on, on TikTok. I don't. I don't use it myself. But <laughs> um, you know, uh, it, it. It seems. It seems to me that the, the, the concept is is brilliant and and simple. I mean, this is sort of sharing goofy videos, family fun. Um, very much now a part of the the lifestyle uh, of of a generation of young Americans, and they're not understanding why this app needs to be closed down either. I mean, this is why you need to have a national debate. Why, you know, th- this is a serious issue. How are we going to handle, in the long run, um, Chinese investments in this area? How how are we going to deal with 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 Chinese companies that that access U.S. Data, um, you know the, the 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 approach now, which is is, is close it down. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- this is what the Chinese would do. I mean, you know, you, if if the idea, um, you know, is is is, yep. is 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 to preserve freedom of speech in the United States, to oppose the Chinese style of doing things, well, you're actually acting <laughs> rather like the Chinese would do. Exactly right. Always fascinating talking uh, to Andy Brown. He has a great perspective on all things China. Andy Brown, editorial director for Bloomberg New Economy, uh, talking about that crazy news uh, about TikTok. Is it going to be shut down? Is it going to be sold? If it's going to be sold, who's going to buy it? Does uh, President Trump and the government get an investment banking fee? Uh, All kinds of things we're following right now. We'll have that more for you coming up. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.